Amen. Jump down with me to verse 12. Verse 12. And we're going to be jumping right into the middle of things here. Verse 12, beginning to read. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, verse 13, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now, let's take a look at this. The last section of this chapter consists of the psalmist's own internal reflection on how his heart is going to react to the truth that we've already read through. Now, in Psalm 8, when David reflected on God's glory in the heavens, he was forced to look at the dignity of man. Now here in this psalm, he is reflecting on man's sinfulness and limitations. I mean, there is something to be said about the glory of man. Man was created in God's image, right? A glorious creation. We would say the pinnacle of his creation in terms of what he created to dwell on the earth. Amazing. God is perfect. And his revelation in nature and the word reveal his glory, his power, and his wisdom. But man is such an insignificant part in the vastness of God's creation. That's one of the things that David said in Psalm 8. Who am I? You know, when I, when I consider this and that and all these things that God made, and then I look at me, it's like, man, who am I? But just as nothing is hidden from the heat of the sun, we saw earlier in the chapter, and even as the voice of, the natural, of, of natural revelation penetrates, we saw in verse 4, to the ends of the earth, so God's word with all its perfections penetrates and examines man. The godly man stands, therefore, in fear before his creator redeemer, knowing that he may have hidden faults or errors that he has not yet discovered. So looking back at verse 12, please excuse me, I'm going to take another sip here. Looking back at verse 12, the question is asked, who can discern his errors? The psalmist asks, who can discern his errors? In other words, how can a person know what's in his own heart? Now, this reflection of David is similar to that of Jeremiah 17, 9. When the question was asked there, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, the word here in verse 12, the word errors, is derived from a verb which means to wander, to go astray, then to do wrong, and to transgress. It refers here to wanderings or departures from the law of God. 
And the question seems to have been asked in view of the purity, the exactness, and the extent of the law of God. In view of a law so pure, so holy, so exacting in its demands, and so extended in its requirements, asserting jurisdiction over the thoughts, over our words, over the whole life of a human being, who can recall the number of times that he has departed from such a law? The language is such as every man who has any sense, any just sense of the nature and requirements of the law and a just view of his own life must use in reference to himself. The reason why any man is elated with a conviction of his own goodness is that he has no just sense of the requirements of the law of God. And the more anyone studies that law, the more will he be convinced of the extent of his own depravity. Think about that. And who is there that can understand his own errors? Who can calculate the sins of a life? Who can make an estimate of the number of impure and unholy thoughts which in the course of many years have passed through or found a lodging in the mind? Who can number up <clears throat> the words which have been spoken and should not have been spoken? Who can recall the forgotten sins and follies of a life the sins of, of childhood, the sins of youth, or even older years. I mean, who can actually fathom all of that? There is but one being in the universe that can do this. And to him, all this is known. Nothing has escaped his observation. Nothing has faded from his memory. Nothing can prevent his making a full disclosure of this if he should choose to do so. Proverbs 5.21 says, For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. Psalm 90 verse 8 says, You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret secret sins in the light of your presence. It is in his power, in God's power, at any moment to overwhelm the soul with the recollection of his guilt. It is in his power to cover us with confusion and shame at the revelation of the judgment day. The Lord said in Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. So knowing this about God and what he has the capacity to do and understanding every little thought we've ever had, our only hope, our only security that he will not call us into account account for all of those things, the only hope that we have that he will not do this is in his mercy. (laughs) That's it and that he may not do it 
A person should, without delay, seek his mercy and pray that their sins may be blotted out, that they shall not be disclosed when we appear before him. And this is precisely what happens when Christ becomes a person's Savior and Lord. If you guys don't mind, I'm going to grab the chair real quick. I don't know why, but I'm feeling kind of dizzy. So I'm going to grab this chair and sit down. Forgive me, but that happens to me from time to time. I think it's my thyroid thing. Can you guys see me okay? Okay. So this is precisely what happens when a person becomes, receives Christ as their Savior and Lord. Hebrews 10.10, listen to this. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. In other words, that's another way of saying the work has been finished. Jesus has conquered that. And so, as the psalmist says, who can discern his errors? Notice what he says next, in the next part of verse 12. Then he says, equip me of hidden, acquit, excuse me, acquit me of hidden faults. Now the word here rendered hidden means that which is covered, that which is concealed. I think we could probably guess that. The reference is to those errors and faults which have been hidden from the eye of him who committed them as well as from the eyes of the world. So the sense here is that the law of God is so spiritual and so pure and so expanded in its claims, so extended in its claims, that the author of the psalm felt that it must embrace many things which had been hidden even from his own view. Errors and faults lying deep in the soul and which had never been developed or expressed. Now, you know that ignorance does not constitute innocence, right? We are still accountable for such errors and faults before God. Think about those little rascals that we've, many of us have had <clears throat> when they were very, very young, like one, right? They're not aware of their atrocious sins. They're just being selfish un- completely unbeknownst to them when they grab that toy and say, mine! <clears throat> they don't understand the enormity of how evil their heart is actually being at that particular time. They're ignorant of it. However, ignorance does not necessarily <clears throat> mean that there is innocence because obviously they're not behaving in an innocent way. But once again, praise God for his grace that extends to these sins as well. In fact, think about 1 John 1.7. Listen what that says. You can turn there if you want. I'm going to read through it pretty quick though. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, 
We have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So walking in the light as he himself is in the light means we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Christ continues to cleanse us from all sin. So from these sins, as well as those sins which have been manifest to himself and to the world, the psalmist here is praying that he might be cleansed. Lord, whatever is inside of me that I'm not even aware of, wash that away. Now, moving beyond the sins that are known, the psalmist prays a different way for the ones that are known. Look at verse 13. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great, transact, great transgression. So in contrast to these inadvertent sins where the psalmist are the, what the psalmist calls presumptuous sins. Now the word for presumptuous is normally translated as pride. And that fits well with the meaning of the word in this context. The word used here is manifestly designed to stand in contrast with the secret faults mentioned in the previous verse. The prevailing thought is that of pride. And the reference is particularly to sins which proceed from self-confidence, from reliance on one's own strength. I thought this was an interesting quote. This is from a commentary. <clears throat> One commentator said this, things that make sin presumptuous. Number one, we know better. Number two, when friends have warned us. Number three, when God himself has warned us. Four, when we have warned others against the same sins. Five, when we plan and relish our sin. The petition here in chapter 19 supposes that these may be committed by good men if left to themselves and that there is a proneness in them to these things and that they would rush into them were they not kept back and restrained by the powerful and effective grace of God. And that also supposes that the saints cannot keep themselves, that God only can keep them from evil. And therefore, they pray to him that he would keep them from evil. That's what the psalmist is asking here. Lord, keep your servant back from these things you know that it's possible for us to be deceived, isn't it? Think about some of the belief systems that you know about that you've thought, who in the world could ever believe that? Or maybe you've thought about someone who committed a, an atrocious act. How in the world could someone do that? 
The truth is any one of us could. The ability to do that is inherent in every human being. So David prays, Lord, keep me back from these things. Jude one twenty four, We know this one, right? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Psalm 119.133 says, Establish my footsteps in your word and do not let iniquity have dominion over me. That's what David says in the next part of the verse there. Look at it. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Let them not reign over me. That is, don't let them get the mastery or the ascendancy over me. Let me not become a slave of sin. Subject to it so that it would dominate me. Sin often secures that kind of a triumph or mastery over the mind, making a slave of the person who yields to it. A true freeman is one who is emancipated from the dominion of sin and walks in true liberty. Romans 6 and Romans 8 tries to encourage our hearts in this. Romans 6.14 says, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And then Romans 8.2 says, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So that's what grace does. Grace enables us to step away from the dominion of sin. Now this doesn't mean that we cannot sin, but rather that we don't have to allow sin to rule over us. Okay, So David prays, let them not rule over me. But then he says, look at the next part, then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. In other words, then he would have this evidence that he was the friend of God, that he was kept from the indulgence of secret faults and from open transgressions. Now, this does not mean that he would be absolutely innocent or free from all sin, but it means here that there would be, that he would be innocent, as it says, of great transgression. He would be saved from the great guilt which would ensue if he should give unchecked indulgence to secret faults and if he should be allowed to commit the open sins which were the result of pride and self-confidence. Now, I'll bet David had some people in mind when he prayed this prayer. King Saul, maybe? Maybe? I mean, Saul deteriorated before, spiritually before David. I mean, right in front of David. Right before his very eyes. Look how Saul went into a spiritual spiral down. And David watched the whole thing happen as God was elevating David spiritually. 
Maybe David had Dathan and Abiram in mind. Remember those guys in the book of Numbers? I mean, they did some amazing things that when you look at it, it's like, wow. Talk about spiraling, spiraling down spiritually. Now let me ask us all a question tonight. Do we care about getting victory over our sins? I mean, will we, are we ever in a position where we're praying words like this? Lord, please don't let sin have dominion over me. Lord, help me to walk blameless before you. We should all be of a mindset to pray this way often. Finally, verse 14. By the way, let me just throw this out at you. It's a good thing when a sinful habit causes great distress. (laughs) That's a good thing. Do you ever feel absolutely horrible when you know you're doing something wrong? Praise God for that. I mean, do you want to not feel horrible? Verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now, verse 14 has long been a memory verse for me. Let's just pick it apart, one phrase at a time. Let the words of my mouth, meaning either his speech in common conversation, which obviously should not be filthy and foolish, but as Ephesians says, should minister grace to the hearer, or else his address to God, both in prayer and thanksgiving. I mean, both of those could be in view. The meditation of my heart, his inward thoughts, continually revolving in his mind. Maybe the meditation on the word of God or divine things or even his mental prayers which are not verbally expressed. You guys ever just pray in here? You're not saying a word. You're just thinking a prayer. That reminds me of Philippians 4.8. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever's lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, if there's anything praiseworthy, think, dwell on these things. Psalm 119 verse 15 says, I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. Let the words of my heart and the meditation of my heart, next part, be acceptable in your sight. The psalm ends here not on the note of just avoiding sin, but but on that of offering back to God the mind's fitting response to his own words as a pure sacrifice. That's what that reminds me of. Let it be acceptable in your sight. Words of my mouth, meditation in your heart. Think about what? Romans 12, 1, right? I urge you, brethren, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Lord, what comes out of my mouth and what my mind thinks about, let it be acceptable in your sight. And then lastly, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. 
to the one who had been the strength of his life and of his salvation, the rock on which he was built and established, and the redeemer who had redeemed his life from destruction. How many times did David allude to that? Lord, you've redeemed my life from destruction and out of the hands of all of his enemies. I'll bet when David was running from Saul, he wondered, is this ever going to end? Am I ever going to be free from the clutches of this man? Now, he never actually was in the clutches of Saul. But it always seemed like Saul was nipping at his heels. And David felt the pressure of that constantly. Nip, nip, nip. It's like he could just almost feel it. But yet, Saul never quite laid hold of him. God delivered David from many of his enemies. But God also delivered him from his iniquities. Psalm 32. The psalm that David wrote post-Bathsheba, but he described the experience that he was going through in his heart during that sinful season when he was trying to cover up his sin with Bathsheba. Psalm 51 is his psalm of repentance when he was crying out to the Lord because of what he had done. And he asked the Lord, create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. That's, that's not an unreasonable thing to pray, is it? Lord, I deserve your wrath. We should be humble enough, even, even though we are redeemed by God, saved by his son, eternally saved by the final offering of Jesus Christ on the cross. There was nothing inappropriate about saying, Lord, I deserve to be cast out of your presence. I deserve, I don't deserve any of your good graces. I've received it, but I don't deserve it. And always being humbled by that. So, to conclude, when we consider what God has made, his amazing creation, when we consider that we are a part of that, let us be in awe over that. But, let's also take into consideration what we have in the scriptures. All that the scriptures can be for us, all that God wants them to be for us, our, our bread, I just read in John 6 today where Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Remember when they threw back at him, uh, our fathers had manna. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. That manna was nothing compared to me. I'm the bread of life. Jesus said to the woman of the well that he, was, that he could satisfy thirst, thirst, hunger. Jesus' is wealth Jesus is everything. He is our all in all. So when we consider the word of God and all that it should mean to us, does it bring us to this type of reflection in our hearts? Does it bring us to this place where it brought the psalmist to start asking, to start praying in this way and to start asking these kind of questions? Lord, what do you see in me? Lord, what, 
what, I'm, what am I playing around with? What is there about me that you see that I'm not, maybe not wanting to see? You ever been in that place in your heart where you kind of don't want to know what God sees? You kind of know maybe, you, maybe we're not where we should be, but you kind of don't want God to point it out. reflection is an important thing. Deep meditation is an important thing. Thinking long on the scriptures is an important thing. Sometimes we don't have a lot of time to think long. We're too busy. We've got so much stuff going on. It's, it's all I can do is just to squeeze in that 15-minute devotional or you know, read the daily bread for a couple of minutes in the morning. You know, a quick, a quick prayer to the Lord and off we go. Run, 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 run. And sometimes we don't take that time to just contemplate. Lord, what do you see? What, what, what do I think about the fear of the Lord? Do I see the fear of the Lord as clean and enduring forever? Lord, are your words really more desirable and then gold. Is your word really sweeter than the honeycomb to me? So hopefully there has been enough thought-provoking material in this psalm to make all of us just sort of stand in awe over God's word. Amen? Amen. Sorry that I... I hope I didn't scare anybody by... <clears throat> confessing to you how horrible I felt at, the, at that particular moment, but I probably just didn't eat enough. I, I do that. It's a bad habit of mine on Wednesdays. I get, you know, so entrenched in what I'm doing, I literally, you know, I'll, sometimes I forget to eat totally or I just don't think about what I'm doing and I don't pay enough attention to it. I'm not careful enough. <clears throat> so I come here on Wednesday night and I crash and burn in front of all you guys. But... <clears throat> Let's not miss the, the most important thing tonight, and that's what we've learned. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. This is a good psalm to memorize, isn't it? It really is. It's a good psalm just to put into memory. I've not, I've not memorized the whole thing, bits and pieces of it, but it'd be good for us to probably just put it to memory. One of the great things about memorizing Scripture is you can walk around all the time and just quote it to yourself. <laughs> and you've always got the word in your heart, you know? Just repeat it back to yourself. Say it out loud. <clears throat> People may think you're crazy walking around talking to yourself, but that's okay. <laughs> Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you tonight, Lord, for, for bringing your word to our hearts. And Heavenly Father, for allowing us to see what we need to see about ourselves. Lord, your word is just so powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And we just ask, Lord God, that you would just help us to love it with all of our hearts. Father, thank you for tonight, Lord. Thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ. And Lord, thank you for the, thank you for the church, Lord. Thank you for assembling us together tonight. And Lord, for abiding here by your presence and making your presence so real to us, Lord. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.